Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. I feel like everyone's a bit quiet today. I'm not sure. Is everyone a bit sleepy? Everyone doing all... Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, hopefully I can grab your attention for the next 20, 30 minutes, something like that, as we start this new preaching series. Just to say, last weekend we had our big annual conference called Love Nations. Uh, if you did miss parts of that or the whole thing, the talks are going to be online in just the next couple of weeks. So if you, we'll let you know when that happens via the city. I'd really highly recommend you just sort of like dialing a little bit to some of the stuff that we looked at and some of the talks especially I think are very, very helpful for the sort of the season we find ourselves in as a church. Well, let me pray and then we're going to get stuck into this new series. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You love to speak to us through your word. And we ask now as we look at the wonderful story of Joseph uh, that you would speak, you would uh, show us your son in the story and we would leave this place encouraged and I guess looking to walk in obedience to the things, the very things that you've called us to do as a church family and as individuals. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you do have a Bible, could you turn to Genesis 37 or if you've got an app with uh, the Bible on it? Uh, we're going to spend all, uh, all our time in Genesis 37, so it'd be good to just have that open in your laps. Uh, some of you may have heard of this guy, C.K. Uh, Chesterton, who said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and not tried. And so what he's saying is that the Christian life is real, it's very good, but it's not an easy ride, so lots of people avoid it. Um, however, nobody told me that when I first became a Christian at 14. Uh, they, it, they weren't very clear that that was the Christian life. Um, I had, at 14, I'd experienced something of Jesus. Um, I had known him to sort of be my saviour. I knew that his work on the cross led me back to the Father. And I was just starting, I guess, a friendship with God. However, no no one told me this. And I guess I I probably couldn't have verbalised it like this. But thinking back, here's what I believed. And I was wrong. But here's what I believed. I believe God created the world. God wants us to be good. Obeying God leads to success, comfort and happiness. And good people go to heaven when they die. That was sort of almost the way I viewed the world, the way I viewed Christianity. And it meant that life was a bit difficult, actually, because when things didn't turn out the way I wanted them, or didn't match my expectations, it made me question my decision to follow Jesus. It made me ask, you know, this shouldn't be happening. What have have I done wrong? Have I somehow been disobedient to cause God to treat me this way? Or probably worse than that, for me to be doubting God himself. God, you're meant to be powerful, yet this stuff's happening. And I've been obedient, yet my life seems pretty tough right now. Does it actually prove that you don't exist at all? You know, these sort of expectations and questions, you might look at them and think, oh, I don't do that. But actually, I feel I come across people, uh, so many people that really do believe that, um, uh, that perhaps they've taken a step towards God. But they do believe that by doing that, life will suddenly be okay. How do we build the right foundations as a church family? How do we avoid these mistakes? How do we avoid sentimentality? How do we avoid shallow answers? Well, 
as Christians, here's what we do. We go to the Bible. We go to the Bible to get our thinking straight. And in particular, it's really helpful for us to go to the parts of the Bible where there's particular people whose lives were full of hardship, a bit like Joseph. And by looking at people like Joseph, who endured something like just over 20 years of misunderstanding and hardship, then it can serve us in some wonderful ways. And I just want to give you three at the start of this series. Firstly, we can learn from their example. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 11 says this. It says, now these things, the things in the Bible, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So what 1 Corinthians is telling us is that we can look back at the lives of people in the Bible and learn from their example. If you like, do you know, if you're in trouble in your car, you put the hazard lights on and your hazard lights are flashing and everyone knows you're there. They're saying the same thing. These people in the Bible, they're like hazard warning lights for us. We're to learn from their example to help us to avoid evil. We're to, in one sense, copy the good and reject the bad. But secondly, we get perspective and hope by looking at these figures in the Bible. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Um, My wife, Philippa, loves, she mostly enjoys a film when she knows what's going to happen at the end. I don't know if anyone else is like that, but yeah, personally, I love it when I have no idea where the plot is going. But a lot of people really enjoy that they know that person's not going to die or everything's going to be okay in the end. And they enjoy the film more because of it. And she likes it because she's got perspective. If you like, she's not just stuck in the valley, unable to see out, but she has climbed the mountaintop and she has got the view. She knows what's coming. She knows what's out there. And looking back at figures in the Bible, we get to come out of the valley up onto the mountaintop. We get to see the bigger picture. It helps us when we can only see a few inches in front of us. And the third thing, that happens when we look at figures in the Bible is that ultimately we see Jesus. Uh, in John 5 verse 46, Jesus himself said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses, we believe, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus taught that Genesis is about him. And that means the story of Joseph is ultimately about him. It points to him. And now I'm not saying that Jesus is somehow hidden under every rock and every pyramid that we read about in the story of Joseph. But what I am saying is that we must read our Old Testaments knowing that they find their true life and their true fulfillment and ultimately their true purpose when we apply the gospel story to them. Again, Jesus said in Luke 24, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Moses was really writing about Jesus. And so we should see him in the Old Testament and we should see him in this story of Joseph. So here's my hope for the next 20 minutes. My hope is that studying Joseph will give us an example of a life of hardship. That genuinely helps us by offering perspective, gets us up the mountain and hope and ultimately leads us to Jesus. And by the end of it, I would love us to learn that obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but always 
always is a joy. Obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but it's always a joy. Next slide, please. Ah, we don't have that. Okay, we're going to go straight into Genesis 37. Can you remember that? Obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but all but is always a joy. Obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort. That's what I thought when I first became a Christian, but always leads to joy. Can you just remember that? Turn to the person next to you and say, obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but is always a joy. Have you got it? Some of you are like, oh my gosh. Obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but always is a joy. Well done. So not only am I asking you to listen, but you're having to repeat back what I'm saying. It is going to be tough. Is it up there? Chris, well done. Good man. Good man. Okay, so in your Bibles, let's look at Genesis 37. We're just going to work our way through this passage. First one, Jacob lived in the land where his fathers had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So Jacob was Joseph's father. Jacob's father was a man called Isaac, and Isaac's father was a man called Abraham. So this is a very important family. God had chosen this family to bless the whole world, primarily through, about 4,000 years later, primarily through his son Jesus, who would die and then rise again to save the world from sin. And so Jesus um, had a great, 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 great grandfather called Jacob. So this is an important family. Right at the start of this family story, this is a bit of a context for you. Genesis 15, God makes this binding promise to firstly Abraham, then all his descendants, that God would love them and work through them to bless the world. And so everything is hunky-dory. Genesis 12 to 15, it's great for this family. It's great for Abraham. But then in Genesis 15, verse 13, God says a really strange thing as part of this promise and plan for the family. This is what it says. Next slide, please. Have we got a next slide? Here we go. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Next slide. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God says... Very simply this, you are the family for me, Abraham, Abraham, um, your sons and your daughters and their sons and daughters and their sons and daughters will be loved by me. However, before they enter the land that I've chosen for them, they're going to have 400 years in a distant land, in exile, in a place called Egypt. So apparently God's judgment will fall on a godless people at some point, that are in the land, but it will have to wait 400 years before their time had come for judgment. So God says, I'm going to take you out of the land, Abraham and your descendants. I'm going to take you out for 400 years. So lesson one, 
if God plans 400 years of exile and affliction for his people, his beloved people, before they gain entry to the promised land, we should not be surprised when he says to us, it's through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. You just see the big plans of God. He's willing to take his people who he dearly loves 400 years into exile in order to achieve his grand plans. And therefore, we must not be surprised when our lives don't match up to what we expected, the comfort, the ease that we thought was coming our way. Obedience to Jesus doesn't guarantee comfort, but is always a joy. Verse 3, now Israel, uh, which is the name God gives to Jacob, just to confuse everyone, lived, uh, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here's the setup. Uh, there's a contrast being shown to us in the, in the text here. We've got Joseph, he's the dearly beloved son. He's the perfect son. He's the favorite. And then you've got his brothers, they're the baddies in the story. And they are jealous of Joseph. They are unforgiving. And they couldn't even speak to him without venting their anger. I don't know if any of you have got families like that. But that's that's the reality of this family of 12 brothers. Um, you know, right now, my family, uh, my family, we've got some difficulties. We've got some stuff going on in my wider family that are cause, that's causing tension. It's causing difficulties. There's been lots of phone calls trying to deal with it. And many of you understand what this is like. It's tense. There's pent-up emotions. There's, uh, it feels like in their family, there's a ticking time bomb. And unfortunately, Joseph is a little bit blind to it, because this is what happens. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 9, then he had another dream, and he decided to keep it to himself, because his family were already bickering. No. Verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So two dreams, both involving the 11 brothers, who, by the way, hate him, his mum and his dad, and all of them bowing down. And if things were already tense, they were now really, really bad. Verse 12. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Now, a bit of family background to you. This is important. Dina, whose sister to the 12 brothers, Sadly, she had been raped in this place in Shechem a few years before, and her brothers had decided to first trick and then kill 
um, all the men in the area. It was an honor killing. They had defiled their sister. So they had gone to Shechem and killed the men. And now they're returning there. They're heading back to the same place. And Jacob, who's the father, is worried enough about them. He's sending the precious son, the son that stayed at home, the son that he loves. He's sending him to check on what's going on. Verse 13, come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, Joseph replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. So little did Jacob know that this precious boy, Joseph, is being sent away and he will never, ever come home again. So this is a massive moment in Joseph's life. He's being sent away on an errand, but he will never, ever come back. So what happens? Verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him in the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it, and as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, he's our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the system and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the system and saw that Joseph wasn't there, he tore his clothes and he went back to his brothers and said, that boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to the father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. And so his father wept for him. So I hope you're with the story. The brothers, they've been sent out. They see Joseph approaching from a distance, they decide to throw him in a well and casually they then have some lunch together and then they spot some slave traders coming and so they sell him off and they pretend that to their father that Joseph was mauled by a wild animal. You know, it is incredible what envy does to this family. I wonder if there's any envy in your life right now. I wonder. Envy very simply, is a feeling of unhappiness at the fortune of others. A feeling of unhappiness at the blessing of others. Something good happens to someone you know and you feel bad, you feel mad, you feel angry. Watch out. Proverbs 27 has a big warning for those of us that struggle with envy or jealousy. 
It says, wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before envy? Wrath and anger are not good things, but who can stand against envy? You know, I wanted to pick this out in the text because envy doesn't get talked about much in our church family. I think we often admit that perhaps we're proud or we're impatient or we're fearful. But I have rarely heard anyone say, I'm just being eaten up with envy right now. You see, we should ask ourselves, where in our lives are we prone to envy? You know, just like uh, we are perhaps aware in our lives where we're prone to lust, for example. If you're prone to lust, you'll be very mindful when I go there or if I see that person, if I do that thing, that does not help me. So think about envy. Where are the places in your lives where you need to have sort of like your, uh, I guess, your, your, your radar up and ready to defend against envy? Is it at work? Is it amongst other families? Is it at home? Is it when others get certain opportunities? You know, for me, like really simply, uh, I am most envious around people similar to me. And so I'm not very envious of people like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or any other sort of minor Christian celebrity, someone like that who's just out there doing amazing things. I get envious when there's people like me people perhaps similar age, similar ministry, doing a similar job to me. And I can feel the envy when they perhaps get an opportunity that I don't get. I can feel envy making me ask, why not me? Or what about me? Or why them? That's not fair. God's blessed them, but I've got a problem with it, like his favor's going to run out. It's like, God, you're giving them all the blessing and there's none left for me. That's what envy does in the heart. Instead of thanking God for blessing them and being grateful uh, grateful for them, I just feel cross on the inside. Guys, I just want to just ask you very simply, let's deal with the hidden sin of envy in our lives. You know, envy struggles to remain in a grateful heart. It struggles to remain in a grateful heart. If you're grateful for what you have, you'll find envy start to disappear. Envy also struggles when you realize that God is unequally lavish. Okay, he doesn't give everyone the same. He gives everyone lavishly, but he doesn't give everyone the same. He's unequally lavish. What happens to them might not be what happens to you. Hands are not eyes are not feet. That's the the biblical understanding of us being a church family. We're, We're like a body with different parts and we need to celebrate those different parts rather than wish, oh, I wish I was an eye. They just get all the, they see everything. The eyes, I'm just stuck inside some clothes. I never get out. Eyes are always out. So let's just be clear that we should celebrate God blessing someone else. Brothers, These brothers should have been grateful for their brother's coat. They should have been grateful for these brother's dreams. They should have been grateful for their brother's gifts. Imagine this family if the brothers didn't have envy in their hearts. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials and the captain of the guards. So in Egypt, Joseph is bought by Potiphar, 
an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And in the following chapters that we're going to get to study, we find that he serves hard. He's elevated to a position of trust and influence. However, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. He flees adultery and the spurned woman is vicious and she lies about him. And in spite of his purity, he is then put into prison. In prison, again, totally unaware of what God is doing, all of this misery, he again serves the jailer very faithfully and is given trust and responsibility. And through the interpretation of two dreams uh, belonging to Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker, Joseph is eventually brought out of prison to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. And his interpretation proves true, and his wisdom seems compelling to Pharaoh. And Joseph is made commander, a commander in Egypt. Genesis 41, you shall be over my house, Pharaoh says, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So what happens? Well, seven years of plenty are followed by seven years of famine, just as Joseph said they would. Joseph preempts the starvation in Egypt by gathering huge reserves of grain during the seven good years. And eventually, Joseph's brothers, they hear that there is grain in Egypt because there's famine all across the land. And they go for help. They don't recognize their brother when they see him at first, but eventually he reveals himself to them. He had been 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. And now when he tells them who he is, he's 39 years old. So 22 years has gone by and they are stunned. They tried to get rid of this dreamer. And in getting rid of him, they fulfilled his dreams. The brothers are bowing down at last to Joseph. And eventually he does this. He invites his family to live with him in Egypt to save their lives and to fulfill that distant prophecy that Abraham's family would spend 400 years in Egypt. God's really very much in charge of this story. And even though wonderfully this story, if you, if you like, could be summarized from pit to prison to prime minister, a little bit cheesy, pit, prison, prime minister, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't for you to hang in there in your difficult time because God will elevate you to power and influence eventually. Of course, that happens to Joseph, but that's not like the, 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 the golden rule for our suffering. You see, for 22 years, Joseph's integrity and service leads to nothing but difficulty and blindness and more problems. And so I think there's something else at work in this story that can serve us today. How on earth, then, do we find the hope perspective and the person of Jesus that we began this talk looking at, saying we should find those things in this story. Hope, perspective, and Jesus, where are they? Well, let me just go there, these three things as we finish up. Number one, this perspective. God sent Joseph to keep his family alive. So Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph says to his brothers who very, are very afraid of him, they're in Egypt, he's got all the power, he says this, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. The first way the Bible itself describes this tale of brotherly hatred is that it was God's way of sending Joseph to Egypt in order to save the very ones who were trying to kill him. 
God sent me ahead of you. That's what Joseph says. And the same explanation of this story is actually given in Psalm 105, verse 16. Only there the stakes are raised even higher. Not only was God ruling in the actions of these brothers to get Joseph to Egypt, but God was ruling the famine as well. This is what the psalm says. He called down famine. This is God. God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. God actually sent a famine. He sent some wicked brothers. He sent some slave owners and he used it all to bring Joseph to Egypt to save a nation and save a very, very important family whom God had pledged to love and protect. God really does hold the world in his hands. Was this story primary, primarily about Jesus? Not, uh, sorry, about Joseph? Not really. Was it primarily about the brothers? Not really. At the heart is a promise to bless a family. A promise God makes right at the beginning, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, to bless a family. And I want you to see that his plans are far bigger than we think. Far bigger. God is very, very committed to keeping his promises. He is big. We are small. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is a good ruling king. And the way the Bible interprets Joseph's story is by saying God allowed hardship to achieve his purposes. Oh, you can see that. God allowed hardship. He sent a famine in order to achieve his purposes. And you know what? When I look at my story, my story of brokenness and the junk in my life that have had a big impact on who I am and my weaknesses and my vulnerability, a major way in which I felt I've come to terms with the very difficult bits of my life is understanding that if those things hadn't have happened to me, then I wouldn't know Jesus now. And so that brings me hope, brings me life. It, it helps me see that even though I didn't want to go through those things, those things happened for a reason. God is keeping a promise. So listen, if um, today you feel you're in the valley, there will be a day when you get taken to the mountaintop, but you must believe while you're still in the valley that God is still good. And that he sees you. He knows you are there. He hasn't promised that obedience in the valley will bring comfort and ease. He's not promised that. He's promised that obedience to Jesus means that we are placing ourselves in his story. We're placing ourselves in the middle of his plans, which are always good and will always lead to joy. So listen, if you're struggling, if it's a time of difficulty, if you're in the valley this morning, then what obedience does, it lines you up with God and eventually it will lead to joy. It will eventually lead to joy. Secondly, not only does this give us perspective, but this story gives us hope. Three words are very important here. Sin, suffering and salvation. Sin, suffering and salvation. See, the brothers come before Joseph again, and this time it's after the death of their father, and they are again afraid that he will take vengeance on them. So this is what we read in Genesis 50. So this is right near the end of the story. Joseph says, do not fear, for, I am, in the, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the brothers meant the sale of Joseph for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is important because here you get the general pattern of Scripture. Sin, 
suffering and salvation. Can you just turn to the person next to you and say, sin, suffering and salvation. Sin, suffering and salvation. You see, Joseph's brothers, they sinned against Joseph. He suffered because of their sin, but it was through his suffering that he saved the people. He rescued them. That's what Joseph does. And God loves to do this. He loves to turn sin and suffering in our lives around to save us. God fixes stuff. God fixes us. How does he do it? Well, there is also sin in our lives. And the sin in our lives is dealt with through Jesus' suffering for us in order to save us. Sin and suffering lead to salvation when God is involved. Sin and suffering lead to salvation when God is involved. You can say amen to that if you want to. Sin and suffering lead to salvation when God is involved. Joseph is fascinating. Joseph is presented actually as the perfect brother in Genesis. There's nowhere else in the scriptures where someone is presented like that apart from Daniel. So Joseph, there's no sin in this story. Joseph is presented as the perfect brother. Nobody else is presented like this apart from Jesus. And we believe as Christians that Jesus is the final and ultimate and perfect righteous one. He looked to others as his life was going so badly. He looked like he was a sinner. But in the end, all the sin against him and all the suffering he endured in perfect righteousness led to his vindication because, and because of it, our salvation. If Joseph is amazing in his faithfulness, and we'll see that as we study this together, Jesus is 10,000 times more amazing. Because he experiences 10,000 times more suffering and deserves it 10,000 times less. He was the perfect, faithful and righteous brother through it all. So listen, this story teaches us this. Sin and suffering leads to salvation. And you guys, as a people, you're familiar with this. Sin and suffering. Sin and suffering leads to salvation. And today... I hope that for some of you, you've seen this for the first time. And instead of getting angry with God, instead of getting confused at God because you just see a couple of inches before your nose, I want you to turn to him. I want you to turn to him. I want you to trust him. I want you um, to know that instead of getting angry at God, that he loves to use whatever rubbish has happened, the sin and the suffering, to bring about your salvation and the salvation of others around you. And that should bring us hope. Bring us hope. So there's perspective, there's hope. Let me land on this. Jesus. Jesus will get the glory in the end. Joseph's hardship and journey to Egypt was God's way of saving the tribe of Judah from extinction so that the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, would be born and die and rise and reign over all the peoples of the earth. Back to me now. That's great. Can we just pray for a moment? Is that okay? Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we, we're trusting this morning that your word is sufficient for us in our times of need. And Father, we know that we're familiar with sufferings in this family. And we ask Holy Spirit that we would not harden our hearts. We would not miss what you're saying. We would not 
lose out on the blessing that is available to us today. But we truly would know hope. We would truly know perspective. And Jesus, we would truly see you. So please help us fix our minds on you. The lion of the tribe of Judah. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Let me just close with this. At the end of Jacob's life, he prophesies over his boys, over his sons. And he says a really amazing thing in Genesis 49, when he speaks to Judah. He says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. It's hard to see at first, but this is a prophecy about the coming of a great and final king who will come from Judah's line, that family line. A ruler will come. Verse 10, the scepter, the ruler's staff, the sign of the king will be part of this line of Judah until a king comes who is unlike any other king because he will rule over the nations and all peoples will obey him. And this, we believe, is fulfilled in Jesus. Revelation 5 describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the most magnificent thing about this lion of the tribe of Judah in the, in the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy is that he obtains the obedience of the nations of the world, not by exploiting our guilt, not by crushing us into submission, but by bearing our guilt and freeing us to love him and praise him and obey with joy forever. You see, the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb who was slain. He's both those things. Obedience to Jesus does not guarantee comfort, but is always a joy. Why? Because we get more of him the lion and the lamb. Joseph's 22 years of suffering. We find some amazing things. Joseph is an example in whom we can find comfort. Joseph's story brings us perspective because we see God's higher plan, even if we feel like we're in the valley. We gain hope as what was meant for evil, God means for the good. And we see Jesus, the lion and the lamb, who was prophesied all those thousands of years before. And we find as we obey him, as we follow him, we gain him and that brings us true joy. So we've got a few weeks in this life of Joseph and my prayer is this morning, God starts to minister to us. I think he's already doing that. So why don't you stand to your feet and me pray and uh, Abby's going to lead us. If you're happy to, why don't you just close your eyes for a moment? It may be even helpful for you just to, I don't know, perhaps posture yourself so you're in a position to receive from him. So I believe God wants to bring comfort and perspective. I believe he wants to bring hope and he wants to speak to us this morning. So why don't you just close your eyes, let me pray and then we're going to sing. And in a bit we'll break bread together. Father, thank you so much for this story. And thank you, Jesus, that you're right in the middle of it. And uh, we welcome your work amongst us, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And I pray this story would speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, correct us where you need to, where we've 
perhaps had a wrong expectation of what it is to follow you. But help us know that obedience to you always leads to joy. And I pray for obedience in our hearts. Help us to trust you when we cannot see. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.